0: October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 60, Movies, Bible, and Women. Last time, we talked about how the Adventists in America wanted to go out with fundamentalism. They had a lot in common, but obviously Adventism couldn't put a ring or watch on the relationship because there was simply too much they disagreed on. Fundamentalism was a diverse coalition of allies, which Adventists joined. Now, to be sure, many of the other allies didn't want Adventists at the party, but what are you going to do? Those Adventists brought guacamole. We can't kick them out now. Before we get into our episode, you should know that this episode marks five years of doing this podcast. No Adventists that I'm aware of at least, have been podcasting this long. I mean, other than the people who just uploaded sermons from their church. So let me just say to the few of you, especially who have been here since the beginning, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. I've learned a lot on this journey over the past five years, which podcasting is kind of like dog ear, so it really feels like 40 years. But anyways, I've I've learned a lot, and I hope you have too. I told someone at a conference recently that by the time I'm done with this podcast, I'll have learned enough to start it over and do it right. As if all of this is just a rehearsal, which it's not. Okay, we are definitely not starting over from the beginning, I think. Anyways, we still have a long way to go, but I finally figured out where this thing is ending. Do you want to know? Should I tell you? Eh, Okay, okay, okay. So season two, which we're in right now, season two of this podcast will end when we cover the 2020 General Conference session. That will end the main storyline, which we started five years ago. Now, you may be thinking, "Uh, hey, Matthew, the 2020 General Conference session is in the future from the time this episode is being released. So what? We're in the 1920s in our story. So by the time we cover another hundred years, my friend, the 2020 general conference session will be way behind us. So we still have a little ways to go. After that, I don't know, season three might just be some studies in Adventist history. We might do episodes on Adventist and food or Adventist in politics, or do episodes on people we've barely talked about Maybe we will do one long episode summarizing Avenus history so Judd Lake's Avenus history students at Southern Avenus University can cram before an exam. I don't know, but we have time to sort it out, and I hope you stay with us. So on with the show. Some years ago, the renowned sociologist Peter Berger held the first volume of a series of books on fundamentalism. These volumes, by the way, are actually sitting on my desk right now. The volume was so big, Berger called it a book weapon, the kind that could do serious injury. Those are his words, not mine. These five massive volumes stood as proof against the popular idea that is out there, still out there, that the world is growing less religious because of secularism, right? Like the atheists are rising up and the world is becoming less religious. In fact, it's it's not true. The world is becoming more religious at a a very fast pace. And the best way to look at it is to say that the world is actually becoming more secular and, in Berger's words, furiously religious. It's the reality that the world is growing both more secular and more religious that makes understanding this period of Adventism so fascinating. I mean, it, it just creates... Ironies, one of which we're going to be talking about today, because never, outside of the 1920s and 30s, never had Adventism been more vigilant to guard against worldliness, and never had Adventism been more influenced by the world. You see, Adventists had never really gotten that close to the heart of any of the movements which they had been a part of. I mean, they'd been involved in plenty of movements they were in fact always involved in some movement or another since the 1850s but they were usually outsiders because of the urgency of the modernist threat and because of the lack of organization among fundamentalists and because of secularism which was eroding the denominational boundaries between churches adventists now had an unparalleled opportunity to influence a big hairy social movement and of course influence is a two-way street. I think we're just beginning to understand the ways fundamentalism changed Adventism, And, and not just changed, but changed in a way that Adventists routinely mistake today. When many Adventists who grew up Adventist, or who are told about their Adventist past, when they look back, or when they describe for you what Adventist life is all about. Many times they're describing fundamentalist era Adventism as if it were the original Adventism. Okay, George Knight. Now he makes this point. You know that Adventism between 1920s and 60s was changing. Uh, another Adventist historian who's a friend of this show, Kevin Burton wrote that Adventism was, quote, unquote, wholly reinvented in the 1920s and 1930s. That's an exaggeration. was it wasn't wholly reinvented. But Burton will prove indispensable to the end of this episode. So we'll come back to him. Anyways, Adventists today don't realize how much of What they think of as James White-style Adventism or Joseph Bates-style Adventism is really fundamentalist Adventism. And we're talking about this period of fundamentalist Adventism so much because it's basically this big bang out of which modern Adventism emerged. Adventism has been reacting to this time period ever since. Now, we don't have a lot of time, so we're just going to cover three areas where fundamentalism changed Adventism. And in the next episode, we're going to talk about George McCready Price and how Adventists changed fundamentalism. Okay, so this time, three ways how fundamentalists influenced, changed Adventism. First up, let's talk about entertainment, card games, music, movies, that kind of stuff. I would love to talk more about the roaring 1920s, as they're called, and especially how the church reacted to jazz music, because to my knowledge, jazz is the only genre of music the General Conference ever explicitly condemned, which in hindsight, you know, save your ammo for bigger targets or something, right? There's that. Uh, but I want to focus on movies for this section. Okay, in in 1920, the question was asked in an Adventist magazine: Is it wrong for Adventists to see a movie? Adventists have always had an eh, interesting relationship with theater, movies, films, whatever. There's this article by the principal of an academy, written a few decades ago, which is probably the best way to explain this. Interesting relationship to any listeners who don't know what I'm talking about. The author describes his life as a missionary kid in Argentina, which was, I don't know, probably in the middle of the 20th century sometime, and how one time his dad took him to a movie theater. And this is what he said. Quote, a lump formed in my throat and I began sweating as we purchased tickets and entered. I wonder if my father was leaving the church or if he would lose his job as treasurer of the South American division. The darkness increased my feelings of unease as I remembered stories about fires and theaters. Looking for exit signs, I wondered what would happen if fire broke out and burned us up. Would we go to heaven or hell? End quote. The film that the... Kid went to go see, by the way, was a nature documentary. (laughs) Oh, things just sound different when time passes sometimes. Anyways, there's a number of reasons why Adventists, like many Christians back then, opposed stage productions and later on movies. The rise of the movie theaters made this issue urgent for Adventists because. For the first time in history, there was, there was a way to push values via cinema on entire nations at the same time. And there was no real way to defend against it except by telling people to stay away. So while Adventists were just applying to the movie theater what they had always thought about the stage, the, nevertheless the tone had changed. The 1925 Annual Council General Conference, by the way, resolved to dis- disapprove of anyone going to movies, calling them, quote, a menace to morality, end quote. Ten years later, at another annual council meeting, this was recommended. Okay, it's in the minutes. Quote, in cases where members of the church's frequent shows in theater or movie houses we recommend that faithful labor be put forth to reclaim such individuals from the error of their way. But if this proves unsuccessful, that they be dismissed from church membership. End quote. Dismissed from church membership? I mean, this is a great example of how fundamentalism intensified or radicalized Adventism. Yes, Adventists had always discouraged theater shows and dances and all of that, but removing them from membership? It's easy to miss how fundamentalism helped Adventists elevate the movie issue to be a much higher priority. Now, I'm singling out fundamentalism here because there were conservative Christian groups like the Better Films Council, who recommended decent films Christians could go see. Okay, it was a fingerprint of fundamentalism, however, to just reject the theater, all movies, completely. Sounding like an Adventist, one fundamentalist preacher lambasted Hollywood as, quote, bloated purveyors of commercialized entertainment, which flaunt every Christian virtue, end quote. Ah, the beginning of Hollywood being the enemy. There would be a backlash, eventually, of course. TV would make avoidance of shows all but impossible. Fifty years later, Christianity Today observed, quote, freed from the enshackling interdictions of the fundamentalist taboos, thou shalt not attend the theater, motion pictures, ballet, or opera. Many evangelicals feel at liberty to attend a Broadway show or the local movie house, end quote. Now, Christianity Today, writing when they did, They were the masthead of a resurgent evangelical movement that was sick of fundamentalists. And while they weren't exactly thrilled by people going to see movies, they knew where to lay the blame. Okay, Christianity Today was essentially saying, look, we're not really hip on people going to see any movie whatsoever. Some are good, some are bad. But the reason why people want to go see movies is because the fundamentalists took such a hard line on the thing. It was during this time fundamentalist era America, that the hadiths or folk legends began to creep in. Legends about your guardian angel not being able to follow you into a theater, or whether you'd be lost if you died in a movie theater. Doesn't matter if you keep Sabbath, doesn't matter if you pay tithe, doesn't matter if you go to church, doesn't matter if you help the poor, doesn't matter if you believe all the right things, if you're just in a movie theater, when you die, you're lost. I mean, that, that kind of stuff began to be added not officially, just unofficially, to Adventist culture around this time. The first generations of Adventists firmly condemned the theater. Okay, we're not trying to ignore that. But these legends, this stuff about kicking people out, that one's not a legend, but kicking people out if they attend the theater, that's due to fundamentalist influences. Now, fundamentalism was so successful and changing Adventism precisely because it seemed so Adventist out of the box. If Adventists said theaters were a bad thing, fundamentalists said it was an evil thing. I mean, close enough, right? So a lot of the change which fundamentalism introduces or tries to introduce are just slight tweaks. A reprioritizing of values. You might barely notice it, but it changes the culture of the church from disapproving of something to being hostile to something. You might agree that this issue deserves to be in the top, maybe, I don't know, 5,000 of things that we should care about as Christians, right, what you go see in the theater. But does it deserve to be in the top 20 of our concerns as Christians? The top 10? The top 5? Well, it's easy to blow this off and say, look, we don't know How many Adventists were actually kicked out of the church for watching a movie? But I want to turn that question around and ask, what was the cost of creating this kind of culture in Adventist churches? This culture endured far, far into the future. And eventually, Adventists wouldn't even know why They are hearing things about your guardian angels not being able to go into theaters. And you ask them, they say, well, Ellen White said it. But it wasn't Ellen White, was it? Let's move on. Next up, Bible translations. One of the fundamentalist members of the 1919 Bible Conference, Benjamin Wilkinson. You're up, buddy. He had finally had enough by 1930 when he published his book, our authorized version vindicated authorized version is a old way of referring to the king james version published initially 1611 this book proved to be hugely influential in sparking the king james only movement which if you somehow have been growing up in a cave for a long time or maybe you you're new to this uh, understanding the history of Christianity thing, then that would be the movement or the, the mindset that you should only use a King James Version. It's the only English version that can be considered inspired, and all the other modern versions are corrupt in some way or another. Anyways, there, there had always been grumbling voices within Adventism complaining about modern translations. Right or suspicious of modern translations. But they had never commanded the ear of the church, definitely not while Ellen White was alive. Definitely, for a reason we're going to see in a second. But the issue rose to new heights during the fundamentalist era due to the popularity of verbal inspiration. People naturally wondered how. If God had inspired every word of the Bible, then which Bible? Right? How could we have all of these different versions? Only one version can be inspired, and if only one is inspired, then the others must be counterfeits. It wasn't hard to figure out which one was which. The King James Version had been a loyal text for 300 years. As for these modern translations, I mean, while well, some of those translators were clearly modernists, or at least using modernist principles of interpreting the Bible... And because fundamentalism had this kind of warfare mentality, this black or white way of looking at the world, then it wasn't just that the King James Version was right and these other versions were wrong. It it couldn't just be that. There had to be a conspiracy. This had to be a plot of the devil to give us these other Bible translations. I mean, nothing else could possibly make sense in a fundamentalist world everything was a war. Everything was always at stake. The specific conflict in that day was between the King James Version and the Revised Version, or the American Revised Version, which was a revision itself of the King James uh, first published in 1881. Wilkinson quoted a Presbyterian fundamentalist magazine in his book, quote, this revised version is in large part in line with what is known as modernism and is peculiarly acceptable to those who think that any change anywhere or in anything is progress. End quote. Now, Wilkinson told a very simple story. Modern translations are based on a corrupted Greek text and are being translated by liberal scholars. The King James Version, on the other hand, was a product of the Protestant Reformation, and thus it is the one true translation the Greek text that it is based on has been miraculously preserved throughout the centuries. Meanwhile, there's been this kind of corrupted Greek text that has also been preserved through the centuries, and so uh, he, he kind of identifies this battle of the Bibles thing almost as a part of, of the Adventist concept of the great controversy, right? It's something that's kind of been going on behind the scenes for a long, long, long time that most people haven't been aware of. This is another case of fundamentalism pushing Adventism into a more reactionary position. Now, Ellen White, in case you're wondering, quoted from several versions in her lifetime. She was aware of the grumbling about Bible translations. Like I said, the revised version came out in 1881. And some of that grumbling, you should understand, is totally understandable. But you didn't expect me to say that it's so you, you got to put yourself every time you do history you got to put yourself in their shoes okay you grew up with the king james version your dad used the king james version your grandfather used the king james version your great 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 okay you get the idea right like everybody uses this version and then suddenly out of nowhere there're these people saying hey we have a new version of the bible and it's better than the one your family has been using for 300 years because it's based on better manuscripts. And, and all of this is happening at a time when the world is being turned upside down, when the things that you kind of held on to as certainties in life are no longer are, are, are considered certain, not, no longer considered safe or respectable, right? I mean, we, I would probably grumble. I would probably, my instinct would be to hold on to the thing that I've known my whole life, that my dad has known, that my grandfather has known. Okay, so please understand, some of that grumbling is, is is natural, and that that just makes what Ellen White says so much more profound, okay, because she transcended that feeling, if she had it at all. She transcended it. She didn't get into debates about translations. She used whatever one in her writings that she liked the best. And to the grumblers, she said, quote, Some look to us gravely and say, don't you think that there might have been some mistake in the copyist or in the translators? This is all probable, and the mind that is so narrow that it will hesitate and stumble over this possibility or probability would be just as ready to stumble over the mysteries of the inspired word, because their feeble minds cannot see through the purposes of God. All the mistakes will not cause trouble to one soul or cause any feet to stumble that would not manufacture difficulties from the plainest revealed truth, end quote. Ellen White was basically saying, yeah, did Matthew quote the wrong book in the Old Testament? Um, yeah, maybe, probably. Who cares? This shouldn't cause you to stumble. This, this sort of stuff shouldn't bother you if a copyist somewhere, you know, in 500... A.D., you know, if he made a mistake in, in copying out a trans uh, a manuscript of the Bible, right? Like, that shouldn't cause you to stumble. That's her point. She's not getting worked up about these new translations, which supposedly are, are more accurate than the King James. Not a big deal to her. And this perspective was reflected after her death in the Adventist church as well. In a newspaper for pastors called The Ministry, now called Ministry Magazine, still in print, a writer noted how modern translations changed Revelation twenty-two fourteen 14 from blessed are those who do his commandments to blessed are those who wash the robes. And the writer of this article in ministry liked that because it emphasized the washing the robes thing. It emphasized righteousness by faith. And he said, that's a good thing. Now he could have looked at it and said, see, they're trying to take the commandments out of the Bible and do what replace it with righteousness by faith right like i just imagine if somebody would have said that to the writer of this article he'd be like and that's a bad thing and this is kind of how the discussion went most mostly in adventist papers throughout the 1920s they were open to new insights which the modern translations could offer them whether you use the king james or the or the revised didn't really matter they were just kind of open to to looking at the text a new way Now, Wilkinson and others were stirring up some trouble on this question. And so the General Conference affirmed that the American Revised Version and the King James Version were equal. Well, that should fix it, right? I mean, the General Conference decrees we should be good. Wrong. Wilkinson's book landed and the General Conference publicly distanced themselves from it, right? Because Wilkinson said, well, I'm a professor, you know, at this, at this Adventist college, and the General Conference is like, yeah, yeah, you may be, but that's going to make it look like this is some kind of official church publication. So they publicly distanced themselves from it. They said, this is, this is this guy's opinion. It doesn't speak for us. They didn't see the point of this debate. And in the understated words of the General Conference Committee, Quote, "It should cease end quote. Now the movie thing was an example of how most Adventists could be persuaded by fundamentalists. The Bible translation thing is an example of how a minority of Adventists could be influenced by fundamentalists. Still it was influential Wilkinson's book uh, on Bible translations influenced other fundamentalists and so the King James Only movement came to life in a large part due to him even if his own church said, he doesn't speak for us. Now, there would always be a vocal minority of Adventists who were King James only, okay? This, This group will survive, just like that. That group exists in many denominations. And even more people, they weren't King James only, but even more people were King James best, right? That they say, well, it's not wrong to use other translations, but The King James is clearly the most accurate. It's the best translation out there. okay? And those people owe something to to Wilkinson as well. And they owe something to fundamentalism, though. Because hanging on to this particular version, the King James Version, is a way of preserving pre-modern Christianity. Or to put it another way, fighting modern translations was a way of fighting modernism. And so for for many people, I can't speak for everybody in those groups, okay? But for many people, it's not really an issue of translation. It's an issue of fighting modernism. It's an issue of fighting the new world. It's an issue of maintaining the Christianity, the, the, the forms and traditions and things that you grew up with. Not for everybody, but for a lot of people, I think. Okay, well, the final thing I want to talk about is women. We need to understand one thing about many fundamentalists. They were macho. I mean, they railed against feminized religion during this era. One historian writes, quote, Militancy and machismo were part of the movement's mystique. Fundamentalist leaders often bore pugnacious nicknames that seemed more appropriate for boxers than for preachers. J. Frank Norris had earned the epithet Texas tornado. There were also several fighting bobs, end quote. (laughs) I mean, you don't even know the half of it. One, One fundamentalist pastor bragged about carrying a gun everywhere he went because insecurity. I don't know. Another one walked New York's red light district to show how manly and unafraid he was, presumably because there's a lot of crime there. I don't know. One fundamentalist said, quote, "Life is a football game with the men fighting it out on the gridiron while the minister is up in the grandstand explaining it to the ladies." End quote. Like what? What? Like life is a football game and the men are on the field playing it but the women are up in the stands and the and the pastor is having to explain life to them? I mean, I know that insults pastors because, hey, why am I not on the field? I'm a pastor, right? Why am I with the women? But also, why are the women not on the field? Charming. Nice. Anyways, the ever-quotable fundamentalist preacher John Rice once told a group of women that bobbed hair, which is a popular hairstyle in the 1920s, that bobbed hair means rebellion. Rebellion. He was a champion of long hair because he thought that's what Paul was teaching in Corinthians. And he went on to say, quote, If women only knew the charm and beauty of long hair to intelligent men and the reverence it inspires for godly women, they would never cut their hair, end quote. Clearly, Rice has a hair thing going on. I don't don't know how else to explain it. Naturally, he also turned his attention to Adventists in one of his books, which was titled Bobbed Hair, Bossy Wives, and Women Preachers. I I can't even read the title of this book without thinking words I definitely shouldn't be saying. I mean, have mercy. Dude, if you can only just go like 80 years into the future and just see that title with our eyes. Mercy, man. Anyways, Rice comes out at Ellen White and Adventist in particular for encouraging women preachers, which is to him, obviously a bad thing. He writes, quote, women preachers have given the world an impression that Christians are emotionally unstable, end quote. Like what? <laughs> I mean, all right, stay objective, Matthew, stay objective. John Rice is just one of those people who are lucky they're dead that's all I'm going to say about that. Now, I should add that not all fundamentalists were on team Rice here. The relationship between women and fundamentalism, it was complicated, okay? Not every fundamentalist treated women this way, but it was definitely a part of the movement. Women were essential to Christianity. They were the majority. Women occupied influential positions in auxiliary organizations like missionary societies. Women were in the words of one historian, quote, the keepers of religion in American society, end quote. But of course, modernism brought about a so-called liberation of women. Hence, the fundamentalist fears that women might betray the faith and embrace the world, I guess, by getting a haircut. So we see denominations closing down these missionary societies, which women presided over. They were like folding them into the main Uh, missionary societies, the ones that women weren't allowed to lead. And so it left women with less and less of a voice in their own denominations. Now, the Presbyterians considered women's ordination, for instance, twice in the 1920s. The first time in 1920, things were civil. I mean, they, they, they talked about it in the newspapers. Presbyterians on both sides calmly discussed what Paul meant by all of the things Paul said about women. When the issue came up again in 1929, things were bitter. Fundamentalists smelled a modernist conspiracy to ordain women. Warnings proliferated about the dangers of women preaching. One fundamentalist preacher went so far as to say that even though the devil works hard enough through men, quote, he got his masterpiece through a woman's brain, end quote. Oh, boy. Fundamentalist schools began making it harder for women to enroll. Gordon Divinity School students were 50% female in the 1930s. By the 1950s, that went down to 0%. No women allowed. As one scholar put it, women could be supporters, but not rivals to fundamentalist men. Wouldn't you know it, Adventists followed suit in their own way. And here we return to Kevin Burton at last. With all the criticism of Adventists being led by a woman, one Adventist denied that Ellen White was the founder of the church. And this is kind of where Adventists began revising their history a bit to bring it in line with the world that they lived in. So, okay, Ellen's not one of the founders, they say. And some some said it was actually her husband, James, who deserves credit as being the founder of the church. Others mentioned a trio James White, Joseph Bates, and then Ellen always last on the list. Sometimes Ellen White wasn't on the list of founders at all. And Burton discovered that even the story of Ellen White's calling was being retold in new ways. You see, when John Loughborough wrote in the 1890s about how William Foy and then Hazen Foss were given visions by God but refused to go public with them, right? Like God entrusted them with a vision and said, go, you know, tell the world this stuff. They refused. And so God called the young Ellen Harmon instead, Loughborough writes, even though her her sickness rendered her, in Loughborough's words, the weakest of the weak. Now, when Avinus told this story in the 1920s, it changed in subtle and significant ways. I'm going to read it to you from Burton's article, and I want you to see if you can tell what changed from the first way we read that story quote, on two different occasions, two different men, William Foy and Hazen Foss, were given messages, but both shrank from the burden and the humiliation, which has always been the part of God's prophets. Then it was that God called a young girl, the weakest of the weak, to speak for him, end quote. You see, Loughborough never called Ellen the weakest of the weak because she was a girl, He called her that because she was super sick. Her own family thought she might die. The moral of the story in the 1890s, in Loughborough's version, was that God called somebody who was physically weak, who was ill, and strengthened this person. The moral of the story in the 1920s is that, well, if men won't listen to God, then I guess he has to call women. And that's why Burton calls his article, the one I've been referencing, God's Last Choice. It was published in Spectrum Magazine in 2017, and it is definitely worth reading if you want to know more about this. One final thing from Burton. The United States Census Bureau began studying religious groups and asked those religious groups to explain what they believe. This is what the section on Seventh-day Adventists said. By the way, this statement was approved by the General Conference. Quote, Membership in conferences or the ministry is open to both sexes, although there are very few female ministers. End quote. This statement is in the 1916 religious census and in the 1926 census. That sentence would be removed. When General Conference Working Policy appeared in 1930, This book said that, quote, ordination to the ministry is the setting apart of the man to a sacred calling, end quote. When the church manual first appeared two years later in 1932, women were no longer to be ordained as deaconesses. In 1936, when the home missionary department wanted to print a statement by Ellen White about women being ordained as deaconesses, right? Something Ellen White had written, the General Conference voted to delete. The Ellen White statement, it would take 60 more years before the General Conference ever printed that quote from Ellen White in favor of ordaining deaconesses. Now, keep in mind, this was done without a vote, right? Not in the sense of, of, of like Adventists getting together and, and deciding to change how they view this thing. There was no theological study. There was no referendum of the church. It was just changed somewhere at the top. In 1905, 20 women served as conference treasurers. 30 were conference secretaries. 10 years later, 1915, 58 women then were Sabbath School Department leaders. By 1950, no women were in any of those roles. Fundamentalism changed Adventism. The debates Adventists have over women's ordination, over Bible translations, over theaters, these are the debates of Adventist fundamentalism. I'm not saying, I want to be clear about this, I'm not saying that you can't go to the Bible and talk about women or men's roles in the church, or what we should be watching, putting in through our eyes or our ears, or that we shouldn't study you know i don't know bible translations okay my point is that you can't look at these things apart from this my point is like the agenda of so many adventist churches having to talk about these issues and the way we talk about these issues that agenda is set by this fundamentalist period of adventist history none of the things we've talked about were native to ellen white's time or James White's time, in fact, James White, Burton points out, is the first one to ordain a woman to an office. These are the debates of Adventist fundamentalism. And because we don't know our history, I mean, I say we, I'm including myself as an Adventist in this one. Because we don't know our history, we assume it's always been like this. When in fact, Adventists were influenced by the world precisely at the moment they were trying their hardest to protect themselves from the world. Oof, let that sink in. Thanks for five years, podcast family. I'm going to get out of here because I suspect we might have a little bit on our mind after this episode. So go start some conversations on Facebook or your, your spouse or your kids or your church family Go have those conversations, and I will see you next time. We'll talk about George McCready Price. It'll be fun. This episode of the Adventist History Podcast is sponsored by The Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that produces articles, music reviews, videos, and so much more. So to check them out, go to thehaystack.org. The haystack, life, culture, theology, and unpublished memoirs. I don't know. Just go check it out. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is Project.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in 7th Avenue's History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October, 2024. So if you wanna go drive around New England a bit, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at Avenue'sHistoryProject.org, And we're gonna keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go